Well, we're going to be talking about Manasseh and Manasseh's repentance today. And we've read uh, 2 Chronicles 33. And it's easy to think this is just another king of Israel and another, you know, one of a whole stream of people. And to miss the absolutely radical thing that's going on here. And that is that someone who was really the same sort of uh, level of evil as Stalin or Hitler or whatever some absolutely extremely sinful person at the end of it all repents and they come to God and God accepts them and as far as we know they're going to be in God's kingdom now this is not the only example we have in the Bible of dramatic and radical repentance of people whom we might think had no chance Ahab is another one he was told he was going to have all these things happen to him because he'd been so evil but then he repented and humbled himself and God accepted him. Now, uh, another example I think is Nebuchadnezzar. It, the whole record there in, in Daniel 4 of how you know, he's made like an animal, he has this illness for all those years, and then he revives and he gives all glory to, to God, the God of Israel. And it would seem to me that he got there in the end. He actually accepted the good news of the kingdom which had been preached to him in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, or have been preached in, in Daniel 2 uh, that no world empire is going to last you've got to accept that God's kingdom is going to come eternally and so I personally look forward to seeing meeting Manasseh, Ahab uh, and Nebuchadnezzar in God's kingdom when during the lifetime of many people who live contemporary with them they would have thought look this is this is crazy, this is impossible. Those guys are so far gone, they're just never going to change. And our lives are full of encounters with people who likewise, I guess we think, she's so far gone, he's just lived for years and decades in that mindset, he's not going to change. But God can change people, and people do change. And if we take nothing else from this study, I think that's something we, we can take, but people do change in the bitter end, at times. And so you can never give up in working with people because actually people do change even the most unlikely of people. And Manasseh is really the classic example. And incidentally, what this shows is that how you end your life is really important. You can sin all the way through, like these guys did, Manasseh especially, but then towards the end of your life, change. And God accepts that. And that's what he says in Ezekiel, that if somebody sins all their life and they repent, then that's it, they will be saved. And if somebody does good all their life and turns away at the end, it's not that, well, they, they got some credit for their earlier life and it's all going to be fine. And I wonder really with Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, whether really he is going to be in the kingdom. I just wonder, because he did so much good, and then the last 15 years of his life, he seems to have just turned away and said, yeah, well, I've got my 15 years, and I'll enjoy it while I've got it, and I don't care about the future. And, of course, he's not mentioned in a positive way, not that I can see later in, in the biblical record. So it could be that those who were so righteous for so much of their lives, that did so much for God's truth, and was so spiritually minded, because they didn't hold to the end, we're not going to meet them in the kingdom. We don't know, of course, but 
it would seem to me that when Ezekiel talks about that, about you can do all these good things, and then if you turn away at the end, that's it, you lose it, you can do all these bad things, and if you turn to God at the end, you accept it. I think he had these kind of people in mind. And this was God's comment, I think, the prophetic comment upon all these accounts of people that we have here in the king's record. So it's how you end your life that's important. Now, of course, I'm not saying, well, just make sure you get it right at the end, because the end may be right now. Uh, But what I am saying is that remember that in your feelings about other people. And I think this is particularly so for parents looking at their children, sorrowing that they have apparently not turned to God. Normally, normally, uh, parents uh, do not see the death of their children. They do not see how it ends. And that's a good thing. Because we don't know how it's going to finish. And it may well finish opposite to how we expect. And that's worth bearing in mind. So let's think a bit more about Hezekiah, verse 1 of 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Hezekiah was given his 15 years, and then you know, he died at the end of it. So then, if he was 12 years old when he began to reign, he was born three years into that uh, 15 year period and so he would have grown up seeing his father who had done so much for God now turned away or not turned away completely it seems but very passive Uh, sort of sorry about it all but just enjoying himself for his last years and look at the effect that that had that raised a child who had a, a total despite for God someone who was chronically egoistic, and who turned right away from God. And verse 4, he built altars in the temple where God had said, here my name will be. There's a, uh, an opposition between the fact he built altars in the place where God's name was. And you got it again in verse 7. He put an image, an idol, in the place where God said, my name is there. Now if you just run through a concordance, an online concordance, a electronic concordance with the the two words image and name uh, at least the the Hebrew words for them you'll see this turns up quite often the point is that the fact that God's name was there meant that there should be no image there of anything else so then what do we learn from that well pushing deeper I think we see something there about the meaning of the name of God, that where the name of God is, that is the image, as it were, that he wishes. His name is his characteristics, his personality. You remember when Moses wanted to to know what is God's name, the angel passed before him and said, Yahweh, a God full of, basically, grace, mercy, forgiveness, but of justice and punishing iniquity, uh, etc. So then, God's name is his personality, his characteristics. And therefore, if that is anywhere, there cannot be any other idol there. There can be no idol, no other image to anything else. You and I were baptized into the name. We carry that name, that worthy name, James says, that is called upon you. And we called it upon ourselves 
in baptism. We were baptized into the name. And therefore there is no space for any idolatry, for anything else that appears as God. So he really committed huge blasphemy by putting up these images in the very place where God's name was. And verse 6, he made his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom, Gehinnom. Now Gehinnom became, in the New Testament, the symbol for complete destruction. Gehenna, same place. And Jesus used it as a symbol of the place where the rejected will go. So there you have an example of a man who was living out, really, condemnation in this life by making his children go into the fire in Gehenna. He was living out condemnation. And yet, you can sin in this life and do things that that should demand your condemnation, but you can still repent. And this is the great thing, that we have all sinned. We have all seriously sinned. It's not that, well, spirituality just doesn't quite uh, work out for me sometimes because, you know, my situation is such and such, etc. We are all serious sinners. And until we get that clear in our minds, you will never feel uh, the wonder of God's grace. You will never feel the joy that comes from forgiveness. You will never feel that flame of total devotion to the things of God and his Son if you have never really felt that forgiveness. And if you're so up yourself, so absolutely up yourself, that you basically don't think you're a big sinner, you will not get the joy and peace of true Christianity. It will be a mere religion. The faith of your fathers are driven along to some, some kind of religion, some church hall or whatever. Whereas if you really perceive that you are a big-time sinner, then you realize the wonder of it all, the forgiveness, that the grace outpoured, and that is that fire of devotion for him who loved you and enabled this way of escape from all this. Now you may think, but, but I honestly, honestly, I haven't done the things that Manasseh did. Well, of course, physically we have not. But... You notice in verse 18 and in verse 19, it's mentioned twice that a record was made of his prayer. And that prayer is recorded. You can read it. You can find it online. You you, you can read it. And it's not been preserved in the Bible. But what is significant, what is significant, is that Jesus quotes from that prayer. Jesus quotes from that prayer. And he quotes from it in that parable that he gives us about the two men who go up into the temple to to pray. It's in Luke chapter 18, where the, the Pharisee prays with himself rather than to God and says, I thank you, I'm not like all these uh, terrible sinners around me. But the, the publican, standing afar off, verse 13 of Luke 18, would not lift up so much as his eyes under heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, what does Manasseh say in his prayer? O Lord, I stand afar off from you. I cannot lift up so much as my eyes under heaven. I beat upon my breast, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, 
Jesus obviously knew that literature. And he basically says, look, amongst the believers, or those who claim to have some relationship with God, there's two types. There's the, the, uh, the Pharisees, who don't think they've got a problem, and then there's the publican. Now, you want to be in my kingdom? So who are you going to identify with? The publican. Now, the words in the mouth of the publican are taken by Jesus out of the prayer of Manasseh, which would have been well known in first century Judaism. He's saying, you are all Manasseh, unless you want to be a self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisee who's not got a relationship with me. It's rather like the parable of the, the two sons, the prodigal son and, and, and the self-righteous older brother. I mean, the story ends with the older brother outside the family of God in the darkness saying, I will not come in. And the, the curtain goes down in that parable with the older son outside the father's fellowship, not at the, uh, the messianic banquet, not at the, the joyful feast of the family when everything has finally been resolved. He's out in the darkness on his own. That's how it ends. So who do you want to identify with? The older son who's not going to be there because he doesn't want to be there, or the prodigal who blows it all and eventually crawls back. Another one, another parable about two sons. One says, ah, yes, sir, I shall go and do your will. And he doesn't. And the other one says, no, I will not do your will. And then he repents and does. Now, in all these parables, we are being forced by the, the sort of binary logic of the whole thing that you are the serious sinner. And the way that Jesus uh, appropriates the, the words of Manasseh in his prayer, which, as I say, is not recorded in, in, the, uh, in the canon, uh, the canonical uh, books that, that we have, uh, and applies them to, to every one of us. This means that no one of us can read this 2 Chronicles 33 and say, yeah, he's a pretty bad guy, and I mess up now and again, but to be honest, I, I'm, not like, I'm not like him. And that's the whole point, that we are. And unless we perceive that, we will miss so much. So, verse 9, Manasseh made Judah, I'm back in 2 Chronicles 33, Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen, worse than the Gentiles. And yet, we also read that they did like the Gentiles. But here they did worse than the Gentiles. And I think what that means is that, not necessarily that they kind of did more of it, or these different sins, than what the Gentiles did, but because they were responsible to God, the same action performed by, by Judah at this time was therefore far worse than, uh, than what the Gentiles did, even though they did physically the same thing. Paul says, if you compare yourselves amongst yourselves, you're not wise. And that's really so. And if we compare our standard of behavior by the standard of this world, we are not wise. Even if at times we think, well, yeah, okay, I, I did that, but everyone does that. That's true. And yes, there's no thunderbolt from heaven on the head of those guys in this world who do whatever they do. But if you and I do that, we are God's people and we are responsible to him. And our level of responsibility is far greater and in that sense, by doing the same physical action, we have done worse than the Gentiles, whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. 
so Manasseh is punished by God. The host of the king of Assyria, verse 11, comes and takes Manasseh and carries him to Babylon. God had told his father, Hezekiah, that because of what you have done, your sons will be taken captive to Babylon and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So presumably that was fulfilled. Manasseh was castrated. That's what I would say that that, that must imply. Verse 12, And when he was in affliction, <clears throat> he besought, besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now this was the great example of humility. Humility, in essence, is a recognition of, of sin. And reading through Chronicles, especially two Chronicles, there's a lot of play on this idea of humility. Although it's not always apparent in the translation where it, the, word for, the, the Hebrew word for to humble is, is, is translated different ways, it's quite clear that a number of kings or, or people humbled themselves and were thereby accepted by God. And yet very often it's also written that God humbled people. For example, when we read that God subdued such and such a king, uh, a king of Judah or king of Israel, he subdued this king uh, beneath, say, the Assyrians or the Syrians or somebody. It's the same word for humble. And looking through this, this Hebrew word for humble, or to become humble, that's what it literally is, you come to the conclusion that you either humble yourself and are thereby acceptable with God, or God will humble you in condemnation when it's too late. So we have to be brought down. And I would say that humility is what God almost, you could say, he seeks for it more than anything else in, in human life. And either you bring yourself down, or God will bring you down in condemnation. So we either go through the whole process now, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if we would condemn ourselves, or judge ourselves, the AV says, if we would condemn ourselves, we would not need to be condemned at the last day. This is, you know, he says that in the context of the breaking of bread, this is the whole point of coming before the cross of Jesus and going through the whole process of self-examination. To condemn or to humble yourself now in this life because it's going to have to come. Flesh has to be brought down. The prophets are very clear about this, that ultimately a flesh will not triumph. Flesh will be brought down and all the pride and glory of man shall be brought down. Now, you know, do you want to learn that lesson at the last day through being condemned eternally? Or do you want to bring yourself down to humble yourself? And this is where Manasseh is our great pattern. He humbled himself greatly. Incidentally, same phrase, chapter 32, verse 26, about his father, Hezekiah. Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Now, quite what that means, I don't know. Um, but I just mention that because it may be that in his older age, Hezekiah remembered, sorry, Manasseh remembered that bit 
about his father and followed his father in that. So then he's brought down, or brings himself down, in Babylon. And then, verse 13, he is brought again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Now, this is exactly what happened sometime later to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Exactly the same language is used. He was humbled, and he then returned into his kingdom. It's a strange idea, but the idea is, is common with those two kings. That he was humbled, then he returned to his kingdom. Which is a bit strange, because normally if, if a king's off for a bit, someone else nabs the kingdom. But in both Nebuchadnezzar's case and in Manasseh's case, they got their kingdoms back. And that's quite freaky. And the fact two men had this, and they were both uh, connected with Babylon, I think is intentional. And then Manasseh knew that Yahweh, he was God, and that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar goes and writes to the whole of his empire. Yahweh is God. The God of Israel is the only true God. So I think that this extraordinary example of Manasseh did really help Nebuchadnezzar later on, because he would have heard of all this. It was there in the history and the annals. And yet, of course, although Manasseh, I think, can look forward to being in the kingdom when we look forward to meeting him, it didn't quite end there, because although he himself will be saved, the consequence of what he did still remained, in the sense that verse 17, nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto the Lord their God. So the example that is set by human sin can never really be undone. And of course, at the end of our chapter, we read about how his son, Ammon, became king at 22 years old, and he was dead after two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Manasseh, his father. He sacrificed unto all the carved images which Manasseh, his father, had made. He did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. Incidentally, we're told that Manasseh threw all these um, graven images that he'd made, he threw them out. And you read that in, in verse uh, 15, that he, he took them down and he threw them out of the city. But it seems they were not completely destroyed because his son comes along and picks them up and starts worshipping them. It's interesting to see that the, the sort of cycle that Hezekiah's uh, parents had been idolaters and he destroys their idols and builds up the things of God. Then Manasseh comes along and knocks down all that Hezekiah has done and then he starts to serve idols, and then he repents and knocks them down again. His son comes and builds them up again, and then his grandson, Josiah, knocks them down again. And then, you know, it continues, because Josiah's sons build them up again. So this is the cycle, I think, of, of human spiritual life, unfortunately. But the point is that <clears throat> Manasseh's repentance was... Great. And Manasseh is us. And we are challenged. We are really challenged 
by the breaking of bread, by coming before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to that self-humiliation, to realize that we would not have done that, what he did, and we really have failed so many ways all our lives long. And the more we examine our lives in the light of him there, the more we perceive this. And so the, the, the idea is that we really can repent, that change is possible. So many people think, I cannot change, the way is set. This is how I was brought up, this is how I am as a person, this unfortunately is the way that I'm going. But change is possible, and radical, radical change is possible. And if we condemn ourselves now, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if you bring yourself down now, you will not be brought down on the last day, and you will stand, I will stand, we will stand, by his grace, together in God's kingdom, by his grace.